Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Hello, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Skylit. This is the Skylight Books podcast series, and I'm your host, Maddie Gobo, the events manager here at Skylight Books. If you're not familiar with Skylight, we are an independent bookstore located in the most feelest neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. Right now, we're open every day, uh, weekdays 11 a.m. to 7 p.m., and weekends 10 a.m. to 8 p.m. If you wear a mask and socially distance and sanitize your hands, You've been hearing me say all of these things for months, so you already know how to do it. Um, but we're we're really looking forward to getting you all of the good holiday books you're looking for. So we encourage you to come out and shop as early as you can. Um, you know, everything's been haywire this year, so uh, a little advanced planning is never a bad thing. Um, let me see, what else can I tell you? We've got some great events coming up to finish out our events season here in November and December. You can find them on our Crowdcast page, crowdcast.io slash skylightbooks, or on our website, skylightbooks.com. All right, so today we are tackling a pretty big topic, um, and one I think that um, a lot of us are taking a, a second look at as we come out the other side of this wild election year. Um, I'm really excited to get into it, and um, I think our guests are going to have a great conversation. So I'm going to first tell you a little bit about the book, and then I'll introduce them. So the book we are going to be discussing today is called The Money Plot, A History of Currency's Power to Enchant, Control, and Manipulate. It's by Frederick Kaufman. Um, In the book, Frederick Kaufman tackles the complex history of money, beginning with the earliest myths and wrapping up with Wall Street's Byzantine present-day doings. Along the way, he exposes a set of allegorical plots, stock characters, and stereotypical metaphors that have long been linked with money and commercial culture. From Melanesian trading rituals to the dogma of medieval churchmen faced with global commerce, the rationales of mercantilism and colonial expansion, and the U.S. dollar's 1971 unpinning from gold. Lots to unpack here. All right, so a little bit about Frederick. Uh, Frederick Kaufman is an English professor by training and profession, has for the past decade focused his attention on the fiction that is money. His unorthodox insights into the ways of Wall Street have resulted in numerous magazine articles for publications ranging from Scientific American to Wired to Foreign Policy to Harper's, as well as television appearances on NBC, Bloomberg, Fox Business Network, and Democracy Now!, and invitations to lecture in both the United States and Europe, including an address to the General Assembly of the United Nations. And though I have called him Frederick in my very formal fashion in this intro, I believe in this conversation we're going to be calling him Fred. All right. 
Um, and in conversation with Fred today is Indrani Sen. Indrani Sen is the editor-in-chief at Forge and an editorial director at Medium. Welcome to the podcast, Fred and Indrani. I'm so happy to have you here. Hey, Maddie. Hey. Great to be here. Thanks. All right. So, Fred, I think you're going to start us off with a short reading from the book, and then the two of you are going to have a conversation. So I'm handing it over to you. Thank you so much, Maddie. The earliest reading and writing was invented 10,000 years ago in Mesopotamia by administrators and bookkeepers faced with the task of accounting for enormous stores of capital. The first bureaucrats kept track of the royal supply of grain and vast herds of cows, sheep, goats, pigs, slaves, and wives by means of tokens and amulets. The first writing was born when, for the sake of not having to make a new figurine for every property, someone discovered that if you pressed one of them into wet clay, it left an imprint. In what is called proto-cuneiform, the impression of a small bucket stood for milk, a beveled rim bowl for cereal products, and schematic representations of animal heads for pigs and sheep. The marks on clay transformed the ledger of possessions from three dimensions to two, at which point the, the art and science of grammar, rhetoric, plot, character, and metaphor was only a matter of time. On the first spreadsheet, that is, a clay tablet, the domesticated beast was born into a new universe. The outline of an ox's face still stares out from the first Greek capital letter, alpha. A was for money. In 1842, French archaeologists began to excavate the ancient city of Nineveh in northern Iraq. Among the artifacts unearthed beneath the ruins of what had once been the largest city in the world, the explorers exhumed thousands of clay tablets covered with hash marks, curlicues, pictograms, and other inscrutable scores and marks that looked as though they would be right at home along the borders of a dollar bill. The Bishop of Zealand, Friedrich Munter, was the first to notice that the same design element appeared before each block of what everyone was certain were examples of primitive text, even if no one could read it. The bishop conjectured that those scratches meant king, at which point the great 19th century scientists of language plunged into translation, confident they would soon be reading Sumerian creation myths, Sumerian history, and epic tales of the splendid Sumerian monarch Ashurbanipal. Years later, when the philologists were finally able to translate those scratches on clay, they found that among all those thousands of tablets, the king was just about the only character. The remainder of the story, if one could call it such, was a laundry list of everything the king owned, the grain, goats, pigs, slaves, and wives. The first writing had nothing whatsoever to do with telling a story the way we think about a story. There is neither narrator nor chronology the first writing had no plot. The first writing of our species soon progressed from bushels of wheat and containers of milk to deeds of sale, deeds of purchase, and endless lists of tributes, rations, rentals, loans, taxes, and the prices of commodities. Some enumerate the number of fattened goats sacrificed to the great gods Enlil, Enki, and Utu. Others note the same for sheep, ewes, and lambs. The first writing was accounting. The first words were all about the money. 
I am now open for questions. <laughs> <laughs> that was great, Fred. Maybe that uh, leaves nothing to the left. I don't know. <laughs> well, let, let's start with that excerpt, actually. Um, the idea of money as a narrative applies threaded throughout your book. Um, and you go so far to argue in, in, the, in the part that you just read that um, the all writing words on a page originated in money in the sense that the first writing was accounting. Why does this matter? Why, what's, the, what's the significance of realizing that all writing began with money? Well, well, money and writing and money and story, money and plot, these things develop together. And uh, the, the scholars thought they'd get a great epic. Instead, they just got a, a little list, uh, actually a big list. And, uh, and of course, lists are still the money. I mean, you look at BuzzFeed. Uh, which uh, last time I checked at a market value of more than one and a half billion dollars. And obviously, uh, you know, you look at Bitcoin, the technology, the blockchain technology depends upon listing. It's, it, you know, each, each coin is, includes within itself the list of all the previous transactions and owners of the coin. But um, what's important to focus on here is that you have this primitive money in the form of primitive lists. And then as you move forward, as you move forward, you go from myth to epic to medieval allegory, the nature of money changes along with the nature of story. A story develops, money develops. For instance, in the time of what we would talk about, like the epic, uh, trophies of war, like cattle and concubines, that's money. And coins appear on earth around the same time as tragedy, oddly enough, around 5th century BC. And honestly, what's more tragic than a coin, which is minted with one emperor, you know, and then couple of years down the line, it's melted and mint, minted again with the, the face of another one. And the credit economy comes around the height of medieval allegory. What's more allegorical than a promissory note? And, uh, and what do we have today? Today we have an age of endless referentiality made possible by digital technology. And today the underlying value is endlessly referential. And if I just have time for an example, one of the bellwethers on Wall Street these days is called the VIX. Uh, it's called the fear index, and a lot of people bet on it. And just to define, what is this VIX? What is it? It's the square root of an index. The index is of theoretical expectations of volatility. The volatility is based on all the options taken on the S&P 500, which is itself an index, and the referentiality goes on and on and on. We're, that's, that's what story is these days, and that's what we got from money. You, you say that money humanizes the non-human world. Can you expand on what you mean by that? Uh, I think one of the first things uh, that, that, that surprised me was how much money there was before there were market economies. Uh, and that became clear to these 19th century anthropologists who started roaming the world in search of primitive money. And a lot of it looked human. They found money that looked strangely human, like there's the, uh, the ax money in Borneo can stand in for a groom in a wedding. Uh, gong money in Asia, the, the money was supposedly could sing. Uh, Indonesian jar money can dance. Uh, all the copper money from the Pacific Northwest had, had names. And of course, then we have, you know, skulls, <laughs> bones of ancestors, skulls of enemies, money in the shape of collars. Uh, why did they do this? It, it seems that these people were trying to translate and reduce the world in order to see it in human terms, try to control it with these amulets to give them a sense of assurance and insurance against uh, fate and fortune. 
And I guess that's one reason why today everybody says that uh, people say everything on earth has a price. The air has a price, a mountain, your DNA, everything has a price. And because money, I think, still gives us the hope for better or for worse that the world might somehow still be in our grasp. You describe the relationship of humans to money as a kind of spiritualism. Um, going back to ancient storytellers, quoting from your book here, poets who cast their words, spells, and songs into the spirit of a rock, a piece of wood, an eggshell, a seashell. And you describe today's, quote, cash-drunk acolytes of Dionysus, the magnates of hedge funds and private equity, who've convinced themselves of the truth of their fiction, referring to the invisible hand. Um, you describe them as a kind of cult, uh, these, these modern day uh, money devotees, um, whose true, believer, true believers have imbued money with consciousness and power. Are we all in some sense members of this cult? Um, okay, I'm gonna answer this question maybe in a strange way. There's this book I found written in 1925 uh, by a guy named Alfred Krober. He was uh, a great, uh, 20th century anthropologist, early 20th century. And he wrote this about the Native, the Native American populations of the West Coast. And he describes one group uh, called the Yurok from the Pacific Northwest. And for their money, they use this polished mollusk shell uh, that they found at the bottom of this uh, salmon river. You know, they get all their food from the, from the river. And it was a pretty, there was pretty good exchange value for these, uh, <laughs> for these shells. You get a 27 inch band uh, could buy a canoe. And uh, Krober called this money dentalia. And I actually have, here's a quote that I just, uh, from Krober. Here's a quote from the book. The, the Yurok are firmly convinced that persistent thinking about money will bring it. As a man climbs the hill to gather sweathouse wood, he puts his mind on dentalia. That's the money. He makes himself see them along the trail or hanging from fir trees, eating the leaves. In the sweathouse, he looks until he sees more money shells, perhaps peering at him through the door. When he goes down to the river, he steers into it and at last may discern a shell as large as a salmon. Saying a thing with sufficient intensity and frequency was a means towards bringing it about. A man often kept calling, I wanna be rich or I want dentalia, perhaps weeping at the same time. The practical efficacy of the custom is unquestionable. And so the whole thing sounds absurd, right? It sounds absurd until you realize Think about today, like to a real estate agent, what, what does an apartment look like? It, it's just, that's a commission. To a farmer, his field is, that's cash, his field. Uh, you know, to a mining magnate, what's the mountain? The mountain is, is the gold. Thinking in money makes money. And we are all members of this cult. It reminds me of like, the price is right or something, the description yeah. of those incantations. <laughs> oh yeah, and people praying for money. Yeah, absolutely. Um, U.S. billionaires saw their net worth rise by almost a trillion dollars between March and October of this year. And the billionaire hedge fund manager, Ken Griffith, Griffin, recently called the pandemic a macro trader's dream. What do you see as the money narrative that we're in the midst of right now with COVID-19 in America? Yeah, people were talking about income inequality before COVID. They ain't seen nothing yet. Uh, this has been an extraordinary moment in the history of money and the uh, and the history of plutocracy and uh, plutonomy. Those people who have 
net worth is over hundred million dollars. The macro traders uh, are are trading billions every day on the markets, and they're deploying very complex mathematical formula in order to uh, place their bets. Uh, I learned a lot about what's called quantitative finance. Uh, which is how they create these formulas and deploy these formulas. And it was created at the beginning of the century. It's kind of a funny story. There's a young man, his name is Louis Bachelier. He was, he was French. And he uh, used to trade these bonds in the French bourse. And he thought, he really wanted, he was a scholar. He wanted to be a mathematician. And he, and he finally he was the first one to apply calculus to the market, which is what these guys do in a very complicated fashion. And he wrote this dissertation that transformed the financial world and of course, he got a B, you know, he's like, that, that's cute. Um, and so what he did is he mathematized a set of these trading parameters that are actually similar to the stresses of a plot. It's, you know, a money plot he created. So for instance, he, he created this, this measure called Vega, which is a mathematical measure of volatility in the market. And theta was his measure of time. So during COVID, in a time of market stress, you have vega, which is volatility increases, while theta, which is time, gives people less and less chance to make a call. There's so much pressure as these markets are moving so fast. And so you think of it as a story at like this particularly fateful moment. Think of it as like the money plot. As uncertainty and panic increase, so does the jeopardy. And as the jeopardy increases, so does the fear. And this this index I was talking about earlier, the, the fear index called the VIX, this goes through the roof. There, were, there was a day during the pandemic panic where the, where the VIX doubled in a single day. And in fact, there are products out there where you can bet on what's called the, the double VIX. So in one day, you could quadruple your money if you bet correctly. So it's really trading on, on fear, that's the... Yeah, you're trading on your your or or on the other hand, you you trade on on security. You can of course inverse the whole thing. You can you you can sell or buy depending on your sense of the emotional nature of the market at that point. But yeah, people made millions on fear, panic, more Very than millions, concerning more than millions, billions, billions. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, we're in this moment now where uh, Joe Biden's just been elected. Um, and there's a lot of kind of assessment of what Trump was, uh, is, what Trumpism is in America. Uh, no matter what you say about Donald Trump, he's a, a master of the fiction of wealth. How has he used this narrative and what kind of pull has this narrative had on his supporters and on the growth of Trumpism in America? Well, that's an interesting question. I think there, there are kind of two parts, I think, to this. Um, and I think we have to also remember, like, how did Trump get rich in the first place? Or perhaps he's not as rich as we think he is. But at the end of the day, he's a master at branding. I mean, no doubt we've all heard of it, a Trump hotel. Uh, and what he owns and what he has sold most efficiently and most effectively is his brand. Uh, and this book, I, I talk a lot about branding in, in this book, in, in its original state, and, and not, of course, not branding of the 1990s, but of course, branding 10,000 years ago. I'm talking about uh, people branding cattle. Uh, and of course, cattle was primitive money. And to brand, think about the idea of branding a, a living body. It's a violent statement of power. It's a statement of control, of strength. One of Trump's great ideas is strength. 
And of course, the branding of livestock was really helped create centralized, highly centralized and autocratic power systems. Um, and along, oddly enough, along with the branding came this kind of archaic worship of the domesticated beast that was branded. And of course, you would have these very violent rituals of sacrifice, after which would come this great feast and orgy for the acolytes. And then they would worship and thank the authoritarian priestly power, which all sounds a bit like a Trump rally to me. Um, <laughs> but along with that, there's this other thing that it coalesces with, which is this, this, this great American, the so-called gospel of wealth, as Andrew Carnegie pointed out in a, in a speech in the late 19th century. And we've seen televangelists and evangelists of all stripes really saying that Christianity and riches go together, you know, Oral Roberts, Jimmy Swagger, Joel Osteen, I think Pat Robertson has a net worth of more than a hundred million dollars, uh, and Trump is just in line with these with these charismatic uh, leaders. You know, being rich is a stairway to heaven. It's autocratic. It's violent. It's very American. Right, and I guess it's the reason those who did vote for Trump, the economy, and him being a, the businessman who leads our economy. That that story was what what brought so many people to the polls last week. Yeah, master of the deal. Yeah, unfortunately. Um, in the book, uh, you describe us humans as, in a lot of ways, prisoners of money. Um, but money itself is also a prisoner in, in the money plot that you, that you weave here. Um, there's an exciting story of bondage and escape in your book, a cap captivity narrative in which money's the prisoner. Can you outline that part of your plot? Um, I was originally going to write this book about one August weekend in 1971 uh, when Nixon, when President Richard Nixon floated the dollar. Uh, and that is he allowed the dollar to escape from the prison house of gold. And uh, the idea was that somehow money had been, was being locked in, in, in this golden jail. Uh, and it, it turned out to be just chapter eight out of 10. Um, but in American literature, and, I, and I'm, a, I'm a professor of literature, strangely enough, there is a, uh, something called the captivity narrative, and it's a plot that revolves around escape. Uh, and you know, the, the first captivity narratives are uh, the African-American slave narratives, for instance, and we see more modern narratives of escape in American culture, very popular, like uh, escaping from eating addiction, from drug addictions, from sex addiction. This is all part of the American language of freedom is, 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 the, is this idea of the captivity narrative. Uh, dating back to the colonial period in, in, in the history of American money, we can see again and again and again the hope to escape the bonds of Europe, the financial bonds of Europe, and chief among them is gold. Uh, which is what Nixon finally did. Uh, he went to Camp David with a group of advisors on Friday the 13th of August, 1971. And two days later, he announced on national television that the dollar was free, that it was untethered from anything but the full faith and credit of the United States. Uh, in other words, it was like the underlying value, people thought that the underlying value of the dollar was at long last nothing. It was nothing but words, words of a story. Uh, the dollar now has no physical embodiment. Dollars, the dollar is free, escaped. I love that. Um, 
people are still confused about cryptocurrency and I'm certainly one of those people. Where does that fit into this plot? Yeah, you know, everybody's like, you're writing a book about money, you know, and for seven years, people have been asking about cryptocurrency. And I've always had this sense that uh, cryptocurrency uh, is, is not really something new, it's something old. Uh, it is true that the, the so-called Genesis block uh, 50 Bitcoin first appeared in 2009. Um, but it's always reminded me of, a, of another scenario, which is uh, imagine you're a hunter-gatherer uh, in, in, in a little group wandering about the world uh, from season to season. And all of a sudden you stop and you stare at something, you're, you see the first farm. And here, enclosed, these people, they weren't going to move anymore. They weren't chasing the seasons or the, the animals. They were going to keep put, and they weren't going to starve. They weren't going to starve. Why weren't they going to starve? Because they were planting, and they were harvesting, and they were programming their own security in that one specific place. It's kind of like they were printing their own money. They controlled the destiny. They controlled the fate of their animals. They had these harnesses. They made them plow. They had programmed their rice or their wheat or their corn. I mean, it's an extraordinary algorithm to actually program and domesticate uh, a grain. And that was called domestication. And they limited the paths of the future to make the future conform to their desire for security. Um, and instead of kind of randomly walking through the vicissitudes of life, they were telling a story and they knew the end of it. That was a revolution of the plow and the revolution of farming. And one farms, people say they're Bitcoin farms. One farms for Bitcoin. It takes a specialized equipment. It takes sustained effort. It takes focus, concentration, sustained energy. It's parallel to farming, except instead of horses and cows, you're using uh, computers. And the end result is the same. It's the desire for security in the future. Um, and really, what, what difference does it make? I mean, if the amulet you get is a, the tooth of an ancestor or a digital code, a proprietary pathway. Well, the rest of us are all out here hunter-gathering our dollars <laughs> where we can find them. Yes, yeah, scavenging about, looking under rocks. Yeah. <laughs> um, part of your aim in this book is to break the fiction of money, uh, it seems to me, and to take away its power to cast its spell upon us, spells upon us and to hold us as its captives. Um, why is this necessary and, and how do we extract ourselves? Um, look, the foundation of money uh, is not in barter and is not in trade and is not in, 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 in exchange. The foundation of money lies in our wish to, uh, we might say, securitize the future, to have a secure future and to have something that we can rely on, which will guide us through that future, just like uh, and those, those ancient amulets and beads and teeth and gongs. Uh, the idea is we have something which is gonna keep us safe through the fraught epic of our own lives. And the specifics of that story obviously have changed over the years. And I think we saw during COVID, we saw with, it was very obvious that something, had, something was, came to our attention, which is that we saw trillions of new dollars emitted during COVID. I mean, everybody was arguing about, oh, we don't have enough, we don't have, we don't have $20 million for food stamps for children. No, but all of a sudden we had 2 trillion bucks for COVID. Uh, 
And all of a sudden we saw how flexible that story could be. We saw that actually money was not controlling us, that actually we were in charge. We can reassert our power to make money, tell the story we want it to tell. Uh, we no longer have to be captives of the fiction of, let's say, the invisible hand of the market and all those neoliberal tenets that are giving a specific price to every single thing on earth that we can't afford this, we can't afford that. Not true. That's the fiction. Uh, why should we be the characters in the money plot when we were the ones who made it up? I want to push a little bit on this. You're talking about uh, market forces and the government. Um, what about us as individuals? Well, obviously, us as individuals in a democracy, we've just seen what can happen. We can push back, we can demand, and we can get, you know, we, we can get funded whatever we want. It, it, you know, just a few years ago, the idea of a basic guaranteed income, and I'm, I'm not saying I promote this or not, but the idea was completely off the table. And now all of a sudden we have Andrew Yang out there and he's like, look at the math, maybe this actually works. And that money is, is, is very malleable and very flexible. And it's, again, it's up to us, depending on the political systems. And the freer the political system, the more control we're going to have on the political economy of that system. And you'll find that authoritarian regimes are going to increase the income inequality. And the more advanced and the more democratic regimes are going to allow for a steady rise in everybody's quality of life. And of course, the better the quality of life, the better the environment. And in fact, the lower generally will be the birth rate, the, the less hunger. And uh, there is no reason we, this can't be done. I guess I'm in a, a moment of hope today, but I don't, I don't think there's any reason since we, we, that was the original hope for money, to keep us safe. We can get back to it. That's a great note to end on. Thank you so much, Fred. Thank you, Indrani. Always a pleasure talking to you. Always a pleasure. Thank you both. What a what a fun and, and in-depth conversation. I, I think I've learned a lot today. Um, before we say our goodbyes, uh, Fred and Indrani, do either of you have anything you'd like to uh, tell our listeners about, apart from the book, of course? Just buy the book? <laughs> <laughs> Definitely buy the book. It's, it's a great read. Beautiful. Thank you, Indrani. All right. Well, yeah, I hope you. we get to uh, host you both sometime in person at Skylight. But um, thank you again for making the time for this great conversation today. It was a pleasure listening to you. And um, I hope our uh, listeners enjoyed it as well. Thank you, Maddie. All thank right. You. Have a great day, everybody. And we'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.